This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. Hi, LSPod fans, it's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin' or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off can be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to The Love Strangers, a Swindon Town fan podcast with me, Rich Pullen. Proudly sponsored by the STFC Official Supporters Club. Rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside. Beautiful play! That is that! What a good shot! Oh, that's a good goal! Last post for Shearer, goal! I will win this league anyway. Richard, he's hit it. It's Cradwell! Hi, Rich. How are you? I am very well, and you know, you're going to have to excuse me because I might fall into complete fanboy territory because I'm a big fan, Yasser. I hope you're well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. Um, yes, I had some good t- uh, good times at Swindon, so uh, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. No, my pleasure. And this podcast recently voted you in the team of the decade as well, so you are very well respected by the listeners of this podcast so let's learn about your career shall we cool let's Let's do do that okay then so we'll start right at the beginning then so all the way back when you were a child who did you support and who were your childhood heroes so uh in football i supported uh after my dad arsenal because he came in uh, to the uk in 1972 for a year and um, he was an Arsenal fan from from that time. And uh, when we came over to London in 98, I supported them for a while. But then when I grew up, um, 
I decided, you know what, the best thing is to do is support your hometown club. And obviously, Queen's Park Rangers is my hometown club. So uh, I support Queen's Park because that's where I grew up. Amazing. And who, who, who did you admire when you were growing up watching Queen's Park Rangers? Um, I wouldn't say too many Queen's Park Rangers players. Uh, as in, uh, for me, uh, football-wise, I admired uh, Zidane a lot. Zinedine Zidane so um, I thought he was you know in his era probably the best player uh, and such great moments and a great leader so I really enjoyed uh, watching him so that would be my footballing hero for sure yeah it's funny because a lot of people with Zinedine Zidane and many people have mentioned Zidane on this podcast as their number one hero and it's Mm -hmm. funny because a lot of like journalists now are beginning to sort of reanalyze like his contribution in some of the games, like the World Cup in '98. Was he as good as what uh, what we remember and things like that? But you know, not many footballers have documentaries about them where we just watch them play. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I don't know about the journalists. I haven't heard too much about that. I mean, other than f- watching football games and keeping track of. You know, my teammates from the past and some coaches and stuff like that. Um, if they're saying things about Zidane like that, you just got to sometimes play the game and realise what an influence he had in those games. 98, you're playing against France. You're playing against, you know, some of the best play, Brazilian players at, of that e- era uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. And he was controlling games. And he did the same against them in the 2006 World Cup as well. So he controlled games so well. He He's the type of player that you know you're going to go into a big match and he's going to control the game. And that just gives a lift to everybody else to do their job. So, uh, I mean, nobody did it better. I don't think anybody did it better. I think others have come along and created... You know, certain scenarios where like Barcelona, the midfield of Barcelona, but I don't think anybody can close get close to Zidane's uh, prowess in that in that field of controlling the game. And it was, and I think it was just the time before the biggest explosion in sort of the salary in in football, which meant that things became a little bit more commercialized and marketable, and that sort of era of like an out-and-out playmaker was dying down. I think he was the last sort of bastion of that. Yeah, what do journalists know? They know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for for you, Yasser, of course, it's well known that you were born in Iraq and that's where you spent the first early years of your life. Do you have any memories of, of football in Iraq at that young age? Because, you know, you leave the country around about the time where the age when I'm beginning to really love kicking a ball about and things like that. Did, did you play at all like with friends? And so mm, forth? Yeah, I, I do remember quite a bit because, you know, in Iraq, you're in our culture, you tend to be outside quite a lot. Even at a really young age, like three or four, you could be just on the sidewalk because, you know, uh, houses aren't built the same as London or even Swindon, you know, pavements and road. You have a lot of like, uh, uh, big houses or apartment blocks and roads 
cars don't lead into it. So uh, little compounds and stuff like that. So a lot of kids would be out and about. We'd play football on the street all the time. And I left when I was around the age of six. So that's when I was starting to kick a football about. And I'd be kicking it outside on, you know, mm. on the concrete. So with with everybody around. And the culture was you knew everybody that was in, in your sort of uh, building or in your compound or in your vicinity of your community. And pretty much... The whole of Baghdad as well. People just know people. Uh, families know families. So um, you have a, a big group. And yeah, I was out and about. And every time I go back to Iraq, I also, or Baghdad primarily, uh, I remember certain things. And somebody I, I knew from a long time ago, I get to meet up with him and we go to a certain area and just, uh, it kind of jogs my memory, even though I was so young. Because it was so different to London, London is it was I was a lot more by myself when I'd go out. Because we don't in England, the culture is not necessarily the same as Iraq. You don't have the same freedoms to go outside because of the weather. Uh, first of all, during the winter, and second of all, uh, culture-wise, you're not in and out of everybody's houses. It's a lot more. Um, how would I say it? Uh, just not to themselves, but, you know, um, it's a more of a working culture and uh, developing your own family uh, and your own household instead of, you know, or going to this person's household. You know, I could be five or six and I'd spend the whole day at somebody else's house. No problem. Um, it doesn't necessarily happen here no. in England. No, I would say that that's very much true. So we'll talk about your career with Iraq as a player a bit later on. But one thing I noticed when you were playing for Iraq uh, whilst a Swindon player was just, especially on social media, the explosion of football fans that emerged and how absolutely crazy for football people from Iraq are and it's something I guess the West doesn't really notice until until we experience it in that way and it just it just seemed like such a football mad country for sure for sure I mean um, the UK is uh, built to you know it's, it's a financial hub it has so much to offer uh, to the world uh, so they have so many sports not just football, they have tennis, they have uh, people coming through in boxing and, and all in, in all different sports. Whereas in Iraq, you only have one thing, which is the football team. They don't really have anybody. They can have somebody big going into, I don't know, fighting or going into tennis, but it won't shut down the country. Whereas football, everybody will be in the cafes or at home and having like, um, like an evening out if there's an international game. So when you do well for the for the country, um, especially when you're outside the country, uh, because at the time when I went with the national team, there wasn't many uh, players from outside the country that were making it into the national team. There was a couple of us that were, yeah, exploding, coming through, and uh, that that caused a huge momentum shift with the fans in Iraq. That there are players outside who are playing in different leagues around the world willing to come and and play for the country and that was uh, something nice that they uh, always look forward to when there was an international game or international uh, tournament yeah. 
Well, we'll go back to that a bit later on, but let's go back to London. So you've just moved to the United Kingdom. You love your football. What are your earliest memories of playing football in England? Were you straight into playing for clubs or were you just playing with your school or things like that? No, I was playing by myself, literally on the side, uh, or outside the house. So um, I do uh, kick-ups all day outside the house. Uh, and uh, for the first couple of years, it would be like that. But then I found Westway Sports Centre. And, you know, we're a tennis family. So my sister and brother used to play a lot of tennis in Westway and in the tennis courts. But I, I would always be with the football. And I ended up uh, just going there all the time, playing football on the pitches. Um, in those years, it wasn't so private. I don't know who owned Westway Sports Centre. It's in West London. It's like they've got six or seven different... AstroTurf pitches and an 11-a-side AstroTurf pitch. And I used to just always hang around there and ask for games. Uh, if I couldn't get a game, I'd go on the 11-a-side pitch and go on the side and and do my own thing. Uh, but there would always be games throughout the week uh, after 6 p.m., after everybody finished their work. So 6 p.m. To, p- to 10 p.m., that's when it was shut. I'd be just kicking the ball around there. And there were high walls. There was a basketball court there. So I was always with the ball. Um, by myself pretty much uh, until I could get trials for any professional clubs or professional academies. Yeah. So how does somebody go from playing on their own and just trying to get involved where where you can to being able to have the ability to get noticed by academies and scouts? Yeah, actually, uh, I did miss out a, a part, which is well, I, I, uh, my dad signed me up to a football club uh, at West West Sports Centre. And so uh, there was a coach called Barry that uh, took uh, took uh, the under-10s on. I think it was an under-10 Sunday league sort of squad. And we used to have five-a-side tournaments, six-a-side tournaments, and seven-a-side sort of tournaments around, around the country. And he was the guy that helped me get trials for different clubs. So I was training there twice a week as well, um, or once a week. And we'd have games throughout the year on a Sunday, especially in the summer, there'd be a lot more uh, tournaments. And in the end, uh, he got me uh, some recognition from uh, Fulham and Tottenham. So uh, he he really was the guy that uh, helped me get get, get my trials. Mm -hmm. And how many clubs looked at you before you sort of moved into a particular academy? So I was... um, with Fulham for a little while and Brentford, uh, but at the end of it, at the end of it, I don't think they really wanted to sign me for whatever reason. Um, I, I don't know what it was, but I ended up at Tottenham, mm. um, and I think that that's why it led to me being at Tottenham because when you have that sort of, uh, um, I guess, negative of not getting signed by two different academies, you realize okay. This is what I want to do. Even if I've got two no's, uh, I want a yes. And the only way to do it is to play your heart out. So uh, in my trial, I had a six-week trial with uh, Tottenham. And funnily enough, we played against Arsenal in one of the trial games. And and their year was, was a very good year. But I managed to play very well and uh, end up signing, a, you know, terms with them. Yeah. Um, under 11s I think under 11s yeah that, that 
always and it never fails to blow my mind that you guys you talk about this and then you drop the the bit that that gets me every time and then you say you're 10 11 years old and you get that rejection or that hope which which doesn't go through so were they just trials at Brentford and at Fulham and nothing more is that right well for a kid it's so much more if you're an adult you go okay it's maybe a job interview or maybe uh, you have a, a better grasp at life, yeah. I guess. No 10-year-old has a great grasp at life. They may have good parents, they may have bad parents, but then they, they'll never have a great grasp of life. And if all I did was play football up to that age and do school, uh, but all I wanted to do was watch football and play football, it was pretty much everything. And when you, you know, you see the academy and you're training at nighttime after school and it's what you look forward to from morning till school finishes and it's always on your mind and you sleep the day before thinking about it and you get there and you do the trial and you go and you go again, but you don't, don't realise where it's going um, and you don't have a grasp on the, whatever it could be, the financials, the connections uh, and you know the parents weren't exactly knowing as well because they've my parents came from a different culture so um, they were going with the with the show as they say and by the end of it that re- rejection does hurt it does hit you a little bit because you think hold on a second you know I've got the kit at one of the clubs I've gone and trained at their training ground I've played in some of their games I've met new people. It's a different experience. You've got that momentum. And then one day it's just like, oh, it hasn't worked out. So it does hit you as a 10-year-old or whatever age. At whatever age it will hit you. Um, It's better probably to hit you at 10 than 17 because uh, the chances of you going to another club is limitless at 10 or 11. At 17, 18, 19, it gets a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Yeah, so Tottenham Hotspur, you know, there's no better way really of uh, getting over rejections from Brentford and 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 Fulham by getting yeah. trialed by a club the size of Tottenham Hotspur, which is incredible. What do you remember about those early years of developing in Tottenham? What 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 was their philosophy at that time? Um, their philosophy at the time, I'm not too sure about their philosophy. I'd be too young to just pick up on the on the details around that age, 11, 12. But, you know, they'd had an academy set up. They'd had, a, uh, had coaches at all levels. They'd put on training sessions. Uh, they'd back you financially as well as a player, I guess, from a young age. Uh, you know, help out with the travel expenses that's what I mean um, and that and I'm sure they could have helped out a lot more if you want to ask for more um, and they were I think just beginning to to get their momentum in their academy so um, the early years 11-12 the schooling years was okay nothing bad nothing special I just think when I left school it became that more professional because you were full time and that more, a little bit more special looking back at it. Mm. And what was the routine for a kid who was in the academies but had to go to school as well? What was your day-to-day like? To be fair, my day-to-day was a little bit weird because if I wasn't training with Tottenham 
twice a week, I'd be out in Westway. And my dad, um, uh, he comes from uh, a background where he used to sell uh, cars and uh, part uh, or uh, car parts in Iraq. And when he came over here, uh, he wanted to, you know, maybe drive a minicab sometimes and do different jobs just to get things going. So he just dropped me off at Westway and I wouldn't see him till late. So if I, I would be, if I would start at night, I would be sleeping late and, you know, kind of sleeping in a little bit too long and maybe missing the register at school, which isn't great. Um, but I'd make it always to the first class and then I'd do school uh, from, I think, quarter to nine. Uh, register would be around quarter to nine. I'd make it for nine. So third les- first lesson would be 10 past nine. And then from then till 3.30. And then I'll come back. I'll either have food or I'll have nap and then food and then go out and train. Uh, that was my day. I'd either be at Westway for a couple of hours a day or uh, outside the house for a couple of hours a day, or I'd be over driving to Tottenham, uh, White Hart Lane at the time, and train over there and come back. Wow. And yeah. that's the commitment you have to do if you want to be a professional footballer, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's just a big commitment, the driving. The driving was a big commitment. So uh, that would be a big commitment. Commitment-wise, for me to go down Westway, I could probably jog it, walk it, take a bus, take, kick the ball down there, take me a 44 five minutes kicking a ball takes me 20 minutes by bus um nowadays it's uber and things like that but if you want to save money take the bus or outside that wasn't a commitment that was just like i want to get i want to do it mm. going down to tottenham and having a train session at seven that ends at 8 15 8 30 and coming back that was commitment um you wouldn't know it as a kid but it, it's quite a big commitment yeah Coaching-wise, as your career progresses at Tottenham, because you're there right into your late teens, one of yeah. my previous guests must have surely coached you in Chris Ramsey, uh, who was yeah. at Tottenham at the time. Oh, Rambo. Yeah, yeah, Rambo coached me. And funnily enough, he helped me get into Swindon. Chris Ramsey, um, uh, very good coach. Um, I had him at Spurs, but he came when he came in, I had him for a year or two. We were a little bit up and down because uh, he was finding his feet at Tottenham and I was in and out of the team at the time when he was coaching. But by the end of it, you know, uh, you see the personality and he was um, a very good person to me and he really did help me. And he pretty much made the calls to make sure that I got into Swindon. Um, So uh, I am grateful for his help. Yeah, sure. an absolute gentleman when he was on the podcast, absolutely. So who, who were yeah. your most influential sort of coaches when you were at Spurs? Uh, well, we had, um, I had Chris Ramsey. We had the head of uh, academy, John McDermott. Mm-hmm. And we, have, we had, uh, my youth team coach was Alex Inglethorpe, yeah, uh, yeah, who's yeah. in uh, Liverpool right now. And they were the main guys, pretty much. And they were all very, very good very good at what they did uh, and they were the biggest influence around that, that age group and also I got to mention Ricardo Moniz who was our skills coach uh, he came in with Martin Yole as an assistant but he would work from first team to under eights and he was uh, a, a massive influence as well so 
those four were pretty much obviously also including you know the physios and uh, the fitness guys and stuff like that they were very good yeah and this was quite a, a generation for spurs because there are a good few members of that setup that are still around football and the top flight today aren't there yeah our year was probably one of the best years around i love that us made it pro uh quite a few made it into the prem um and even the england squad um it was very competitive uh at times a little bit too competitive uh, looking back at it but nonetheless it was um a great learning curve um just, you know, at the end of it, I, I, I decided obviously not to stay there, even though they wanted me to stay there. But I think uh, as an education, it was very good. Uh, but there's always positives and negatives. Um, and I don't know what the situation is over there right now uh, around that age group. But because the Premier League has become so big, Clubs are willing to take uh, a lot more financial risk to bring a lot more players through. So that was my issue at the time when uh, I'd left was, how do you get to the first team? Uh, and is it possible to get to the first team? Um, because there's so much influence and so many players and uh, so many variety of agents when the Premier League is so big. Um how is their route? So it's great. You can get a great education, but then the uh, football education, I'm not talking about any other type of education because that's when you go into youth team, uh, ultimately people are trying to make it as a footballer and it's a very small percentage. So what's the best avenue to make it? Um, and especially when people don't know how to do that at that age, to go into first-team football, and the parents don't know because their parents have never been a professional footballer in this era, in this uh, culture, and in in this specific league. How How is it going to work out? Um, so there, so there's a positive and negative yeah. to it. So we're talking England-wise, we're talking Andros Townsend, Jake Livermore, uh, Ryan Mason, of course, who we went to Swindon for a while, Adam Smith's at Bournemouth, um, John Abika, mm. of course, as well. So, yeah, plenty. And mm. the amount of people I talk to when they say, well, there's only one. Well, Stephen Corker, yeah, Harry sure. Kane came in a little bit and out. Uh, Tom Carroll came in a little bit and out. Uh, Stephen Corker was the year below. Um, there's quite a few other players. Uh, uh, Yuri Bercic, who's at uh, Bilbao, uh, went to PSG for a little bit before Bilbao. Uh, was was in our a year above but he was coming down and up Daniel Rose um, was playing a year above and then coming down as well so there was a couple of foreign boys Paul Ampoku um, Dean Parrott who was uh, John Bostock there was a bunch of players yeah. and, and when you Oscar say, Janssen yeah, Oscar Janssen who you come well. across later as well don't you when you um, when you go to Sweden but um, yeah when you say, and the final point on Spurs before we move on, when you say it was perhaps too competitive, what did you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, um, and I don't think it's, a, it's an issue with, uh, with, uh, with just Spurs. I think it's an issue across the board, 
is that when you're 16 or 15 and you're signing an apprenticeship, and at times agents uh, can make a contract where you turn pro at 17 and you're signing a, a professional deal even while you're coming out of school. So you'll have a one-year apprenticeship and then a professional contract thereon after 17. Uh, you're talking about a big commitment because uh, it's those teen years before you hit the, the first team. But at the same time, you're making a commitment not for a first team opportunity. You're making a commitment for a youth team, a reserve team, which has different um, uh, different makeup to the first team. So the first team has a first team coach, an assistant coach, etc., fitness coach. They have that, but they have that at the youth team level. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the players at that age won't know that they need to take this as as if it's a first team situation, but at the same time, make sure that they're developing for, for a first team, whether it's at that club or another club. But what players tend to think at that age is, you know, if I try and I work hard enough at this age, at this youth team, at this reserve team, I'm going to make it into the first team. But they're not the same, they're not even in the same building at times, or they're not even the same staff. You can have an English staff at the youth team level and you have a Spanish, Italian, um, uh, German staff at the first team. Um, So the leap is not so easy uh, for various reasons, but the main reason where I think it's a problem around uh, is you need to make sure that the people understand when they're signing deals at these various clubs that you're an employee, that you're an asset to this club, but at the same time, you may not, this isn't the be-all and end-all. Do you need to have a route to make it to the first team? Your route isn't just to come in, win youth team uh, matches, win, win the youth cup, uh, win the, uh, the youth FA Cup, win the league, go on tour, in which we did. We went on tour to several countries and won all these cups. But where is the end game? Are you at 17, 18, 19 in the first team, at 20, at 21? Um, have you got a, a deal that's taken you so far to 21, 22, and then got into a first team? A deal that's, you know, made you... Um, quite a bit of money because a lot of youngsters are earning quite a lot nowadays um what's what's the end game or do you need to go somewhere else and a little bit less and try to make it into a first team um and is the movement easy for those players at that age it was very difficult for me because i turned down a contract and then spent some time out football because tottenham weren't allowing me to sign for another club uh, because of the compensation laws Mm. so it's a lot, a, a lot of details that have to go into it, um, and I, 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 and I think it's it starts when you sign that first deal when you're 10, 11 years of age. So it starts at the parents level, um, and that's why agents are getting really uh, involved with a lot of youngsters around the world at such a young age, because when you sign that first year, at 10 or 11, um, and then you sign some every single year thereafter and then sign your apprenticeship you're basically saying that these guy, this club has helped me um, with my training 
And therefore, if I leave without signing their pro, um, I owe them. And that's what happened with me. And then that's why I had to spend some time out. And that's why Chris Ramsey actually even helped with that at that time. When I went to sign for Brighton, he came in, he, he came in and he said to me, you know, I'm going to get this sorted for you because people have changed at the club and and hopefully you can sign for another club on a free without having them to pay compensation. Because the previous guys at the club, um, I, was, I was going to sign for Sheffield United uh, at the time when Kyle Walker and Kyle Norton were, were signing with Tottenham and they wanted uh, quite a bit of compensation for me. And I hadn't played the first team game. Um, I just played quite a lot of games for the youth team. I'd done well, um, but I'd, I'd wanted to go and hopefully get into a smaller team and make sure that I get first team opportunities. And I didn't realize that the compensation laws really just hold you back. And uh, Chris Ramsey did help me, but it's about the details. And those details need to be very, very transparent um, for for players from, from an early age. It doesn't matter. If you're signing for Chelsea, it doesn't matter. Chelsea may have a problem. Chelsea might be a big problem with those players because they can bring all the talents from all around the world. It doesn't matter. You, or you might sign for a smaller club and still have that problem or may not have that problem. Um, and that, that That is one issue. And then obviously the other issue is how do you develop in, the, in those circumstances? Uh, because remember, at youth team level in those clubs, you still have a coach who's trying to become a, uh, better you have an academy manager that's becoming that wants to do better that wants to bring players through um, so and that wants to win games they want to win games so it looks good but at the same time you need to make sure that at that age there's a lot of development um, and what is their development what's the route to their development are we playing really good football at Tottenham and then getting loaned out to a League One side that just hoofs it into the corner? That's a problem. Uh, all these things are a problem. And I think a lot of people hide behind, oh, it's a mental aspect. Oh, has he got it or hasn't he got it? No, it's a detail aspect. It's true. You need heart and you need mental power and you need to work hard at your craft. But at the same time, there's details that you need to go through uh, and sit down and... Is it if it's with your parents or uh, your carer or your agent or whoever's close to you and is mentoring you, you need to sit down and sit down with those the club and have a really serious, truthful talk about how you can bring this player through. Because it's a very small percentage of players that come through. And you need to make sure to, that you're in that small percentage. And if you're not, what is happening so that you're developing other areas of your of your life uh, when you're 16, 17. So that's pretty much it, to be honest. Yeah, no, that was really, really interesting. So roughly how long were you out of action for because of the contract issue before joining Brighton? <clears throat> I would say about six, seven months, wow. I think. Yeah, so... I went, yeah, yeah. Six, seven months because I went... Uh, uh, if I remember correctly, the manager at the time was Kevin Blackwell and they were getting ready for the season or they were already in the season around October time because I thought I would move that summer somewhere. 
and he wanted me. He said, I'm willing to sign you. I remember he wasn't necessarily playing the football style that I wanted because I'd come from a passing sort of background. And this was the first team. I was straight away in the first team training with them. But I put my heart and soul into it because I really wanted to sign because I was seeing, oh, this compensation issue could hold me back. And he said to me, I'm going to go talk to Tottenham. He goes, I just need a little bit more from you in training. I need to see a little bit more. And my God, did I, I put it, I put it on the line. And uh, he came back to me and he said, we're going to hopefully sort something out. And Tottenham came back and said, no, we need X amount. And it was a ridiculous sum. Um, and they said to them, you know, we need that. And he said, it's not doable. And I think at the time, they didn't have the money to sort of pay that for that sort of player at that age. I don't. I still think that nobody will pay that, that sort of money for a player that hasn't played first in football anyway at such a young age. Yeah. So, you know, Sheffield didn't work out and then I ended up uh, at Brighton a little bit later and, uh, yeah, Chris Ramsey helped. But by then, people had shifted out of the club and uh, they... Uh, he. Um, I guess they realised, hold on a second, we're not going to get any money for him. We might as well just let him go on a free with like a a future sell-on clause. Yeah. Well, Brighton, really progressive football club at that stage. They're still in League One, but of course, 2010-11, they go up as champions with Gus Poget, uh, with Gus Poyer um, taking them up um, and you get your debut. So all of that drive for you to just where's the pathway to the first team and it and it pays off for you doesn't it yeah it pays off to a certain extent it pays off because i got to meet uh, some coaches uh, or a coach luke williams at the time who ends up with me at swindon and train under him so to a certain extent it pays off in the sense that when i trained on it under him he really taught me certain facets of the game that I hadn't, I hadn't been taught under that competitive world in Tottenham or Sheffield United when I was there for a couple of months. Um, and he taught me certain facets of the game and how to play the game that opened my eyes. And so that worked out for me. But the sense of the route to the first team it didn't work out so well because I, I didn't play enough games, I felt, in the first team. Uh, and looking back at it, you think at that... The thing is, when, when you play in competitive sport, you always want to be at the top. If you're in the Brighton, Tottenham, wherever you are, you want to play, play in first team. So I didn't get to do that. So that was my aim all along, was to find the pathway to the top. And maybe... If you look back at it, that's where the details need to come in and you need to speak with the player and say, it may not happen here or the next step, but it'll happen on, maybe on the third, fourth step. But you need to know how you how to work it so you can get to a, to a first team. And Brian at the time, good. League One side, playing some good football. But they'd got their squad together, they got their team together. And when I signed, I was, really, I was on the fringes of the first team. And... As they progressed, it became even more competitive. But I got one or two chances with the first team. And still, 
there's a positive and negative to every uh, to, to the situation because I'd be playing under Luke such good football, but I don't think the first team were exactly playing the same way, and they were still bringing investment in and players in, so it was a little bit difficult. But I look back at it and think to myself, I definitely learned a lot in that in the, in that experience for sure. Yeah, and the, there are plenty of people around at that time playing for Brighton as well, like players that are in the Premier League now or went on to. And given the, your age, I mean, you are, it's already clear what your aims were from teenage years onwards, but there's got to be some scope for you to be like, I'm still young, just learn from the people around me, or were you just driven by this, 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 this goal to play in the first team? Yeah, it doesn't come into your mind that uh, I think that competitive edge that we got from uh, playing in the youth teams in Tottenham, that's, it didn't cause you to go and just sit down and go, hold on, this is a long-term project. You need to just sit down, uh, take it day by day and uh, get the right people around you and make sure that you find a way to, to a first team. Uh, it's not like that. You want to just get there and you think if you just work and work and work, you'll get there. It needs to be a little bit more smarter than that. And yeah, sometimes it's best to just go ahead and go, you know what, this is where I'm at and let me work at where I'm at and hopefully something comes by. But you need to have conversations. You need to have conversations with mentors. You need to have conversations with the right people and, uh, and understand the system that you're developing in. It's not, this system is different to a system in like American football. I watch a lot of American football, the NFL, they do the draft system. So you go through high school, then you go to a like different division college, I think it's like that. Division one, division two, then you go uh, and then you can turn pro and you have a draft and you can turn pro at certain years of your of your school uh, during your schooling and you have scholarships so you have education on the side as well that's all sorted for you so that's a different system and i'm sure that has its positives and negatives uh, but you need to know the system that you're working in um and yeah just like you said you need to know what to work on um what to get right how to get better in certain areas of your game and what to think of because sometimes you're 10 steps away from the first team but if your thinking is the right way there could be a shift at the football club and you become one step and the guy who was one step away from the first team will be 10 steps away from the first team within that shift yeah so but how do you know that you don't know that until you grow up until you understand uh, working culture until you have more responsibilities um, and why shouldn't you know that at a younger age you should uh, hopefully be taught that and I don't think it comes within the clubs uh, because everybody's trying to do the best for themselves and at times do the best for the others and what I mean is uh, if you're a coach you want to win football games so at the end of the day, you want to win a football game and at the same time, make sure the players are getting um, enough training and 
good enough quality training to become better players to win football games. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got 20x players that you need to push to a certain first team. And that's, that's pretty much impossible to do as a coach. So it all needs to be a conversation to sit down and talk. Um, and I'm sure you had Chris Ramsey on, well, you said you had Chris Ramsey. I haven't heard his thoughts on it. We haven't really spoken that, that deep about it. Um, but I'm sure there's Chris Ramsey, there's Alex Ingdorf, there's John McDermott, there's all these people that I've come across, Ricardo Munez, I've, I'm still in touch with, uh, coaches around the world that I'm in touch with. Um, well, you need to talk, talk to them about that. Um, and everybody has a different experience about it. Yeah. So when it, we get to season three at Brighton and you're loaned to mm. National League sides in Luton Town and Macclesfield Town, mm-hmm. what's going through your mind there? Because, you know, you talk about one step forward, but then depending on the circumstance, you can go backwards as well. From what you said to me, this sounds like this would have been, in your mind, quite a step backwards going down into the National League. Was that the case or were you quite confident or happy to go and play games down there? Well, you see, at the same time, when you have a mindset that you want to make it into a first team, whatever opportunities there are, you want to go ahead and take it. So my mindset is, okay, if I go down, but I'm closer to a first team, if I go play for this club, that's good for me. Is there another opportunity? Yes. Let's go and take it. Now, whether the opportunity is made for you to succeed is another issue. Because you could go down to a Luton and again, it's not the place for you to succeed. Or you could go to a Maxfield, it's not the place for you to succeed. Um, so, in the end, is it a step back for you? It shouldn't be. Around those ages, it shouldn't be. But with the system that's developed in England, it, it's not the correct way. You watch the other countries, the way they do it, they're loaning, the Division 2 teams are their B and C teams. So they're always, whether they're taking care of the players, I don't know, personally. But they have a B and C team in lower divisions that they put their younger players in. When you're getting loaned out to a Macclesfield and Luton and you have another coach that's got his job on the line and you have another owner that is trying to make it in the world of football and you have other players that are, you know, first team players and they've got their responsibilities, it comes together in a way where you're like, Okay, hold on. How am I getting? How am I kind of getting looked after? Because, in the football sense, not in the mental sense, at that young age, you're kind of thrown in to the working life, as they say, and you've got to mature really quickly. And every footballer has to mature; otherwise, they'd be out of the game. They wouldn't stick around. So the ones that do stick around and they kind of do, do mature in the in the game, you have to go. Hold on a second. Does he know that he's going to a club that? They're not necessarily playing the right style. Um, I'm being taught a certain thing at Brighton and I'm going to a team that's teaching something totally different, that was totally different. What's going on here? And it can have, again, a positive and negative impact on you. So uh, when I went to Macclesfield or, 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 or Luton, my main aim was just to do well. It was, it's always been my main aim. It's always my main aim to do now, wherever I go, is uh, to do my best and, you know, become a mainstay at a club. So that was my personality, but 
I understand a lot of different players may ha- not have that personality. Well, they may have that personality, but go to a worse situation. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I got, I went to Macclesfield and Luton. I didn't think it was a step back, but at the same time, I didn't think it was a step in the right direction. No, well, at the end of that season, you leave Brighton, and that's when you, you know, this is the beginning of your move to Swindon, which starts as a trial. And one thing that I really remember from when you arrived at Swindon, as as from somebody who reads comments from Swindon fans on a regular basis, is there was a, there was a match report from a friendly, and there was a picture of yourself on there. And, you know, it was it, it was seen, deemed an unflattering picture because it looked like you had some weight on you. And, you know, the, the consensus without even seeing you play was, what the hell is this guy doing playing um, or on trial at Swindon? But it was the sign, it was the start of, of, of a really great relationship that you had. And it was Chris Ramsey that helped get you to Swindon, yeah? Yeah, so Chris... Um... So, well, I don't know about that flower and picture. I haven't heard about that yet. <laughs> but, yeah, go ahead, send it to me. That would be funny. But I can understand where they're coming from because I put on a lot of muscle during that time when I was going to Luton and Macclesfield because I thought the best way to make it at around that time is to put on a little bit more muscle and be a bit stronger. I'd gone back to pre-season at Brighton and they said you were a little bit too heavy. I wasn't big in the sense, you know, of weight. It was more muscle mass. Mm. So I'd gone up a couple of uh, kilograms in muscle mass. But uh, that was, but that's part of the progression of a player, especially a young player trying to do it himself. I haven't got a dietitian. I haven't got a, a fitness coach by my side all the time. And if you think a fitness coach of a f- football club is on you 24 hours a day, that's not the case. That's not his job. And sometimes his job is just to actually come in and make sure players are just healthy on for a Saturday with the with the medical department. So we don't have that. This isn't like the UFC or a boxer where you have a team around you all the time. So at that time, before I'd just gone to Swindon, I was at Brighton, I put a bit of muscle mass on to get stronger for first-team football at Luton, at Macclesfield. But what you realise is it's it's mostly in the mind you don't need to put on the muscle mass unless you have to. Um, So, and if you do put on the muscle mass, you have to put it in the right way so that it can go on for 90 minutes plus. And you come off the pitch tired, but on the pitch, you're not tired. You know, you're you're not exhausted. You can be exhausted off the pitch in the change room uh, and your muscles are, you know, wreaking havoc on your body the next day with the lactic acid. But, on the pitch, you get through a nine minutes. So when I went to Swindon, I may have been on a little bit, still a little bit more muscular, but I was still getting things done. I was still working hard and I was still putting 100% in. I just, you're not at your physical prime yet. You're still young. Uh, people don't realize that, uh, you know, you think you're going to be at your prime at 21. That just doesn't work out. You're not going to be at your prime at 21. Um, and, most people in their lifetime, they're not at their prime until their 30s, 40s in their working life. So you've got to give a little bit uh, to, to a player around that age in the sense that he's trying to work it out without having or like a library 
of information and a team around him because that's just not possible. So when I did go to Swindon and I had that trial, I still felt like I did well. Um, I remember turning up at the place and going, what the hell? Because the training ground around the, at that time was um, at this kid's place. I forgot the name of the training ground now. We had pitches somewhere. Anyway, and uh, it just looked like so out of the way. But I put 100% in and I was hoping to, to get a deal over there uh, because I was unsure in the summer and it, the same feelings that I had coming out of Tottenham going to Brian, I got these the same feelings of, you know, uh, uncertainty. Uh, and then that's a difficult thing to deal with because that's all you know, football. At that, uh, and at that age, you, you know, you're not fully developed psycholog- psychologically and with your mind that, it becomes a difficult time for you. So I, I threw myself in and and luckily, uh, to be honest, uh, Chris Ramsey gave me a call because I went and had a trial. I didn't hear back. Uh, my agent knew the, the owner, uh, Lee Power, but I don't think the coaches at the time wanted me or maybe they wanted something else. I don't know what the case was, but Chris Ramsey just picked up the phone and said to me, yes, what's going on? I said, I haven't got a call back. He said to me, they're in Portugal, book, book your ticket to Portugal. Uh, I'm going to make a call. Ten minutes later, I've booked a ticket to Portugal and he's made the call. And he said they will pay back your ticket and get over to Portugal for pre-season. Yeah, sure. And so when so you, when you join up Swindon, because this is a time where lots of links to Tottenham Hotspur are joining the club either on permanent deals or on loans you've got people like Mass and Nathan joining permanently and you've got Ryan Mason and and Alex Pritchard coming in as well plus others so you were more singing for your supper so to speak at this stage like most trialists do where there's no guarantees and it was Chris that Chris Ramsey that got it over the line yeah, Chris Ramsey, I think, got over the line. I think he got over the line, maybe with him. Yeah, not I think. I mean, if I'm calling, a, if, if somebody's calling me, and other than this, at the same time, I hadn't have, I don't have his number saved on my phone at that time. So I just picked up the phone and he, and he started speaking to me and he said, get on the plane, just book it. a ticket. I booked a ticket and 10 minutes later, he calls me, he goes, you're going to be training with them for pre-season. And I said, okay, like I wasn't going to push, oh, is there a contract or et cetera or whatever. Um, the, but I'm sure he had a big hand in it uh, and I'm grateful for that. And that's the type of personality I came to realize with Chris. Um, he's that type of guy that will uh, will will help people. So, yeah, he, he got the, he, he helped, he made it. He kind of made it. And to be fair, when I signed my first deal with Swindon, it was a deal like they they weren't sure yeah. about what's going to happen. So, uh, so yeah, yeah it, was, it definitely was a big, big it, help. It was very much short term to start with, wasn't it? And d- does it help that so there were so many familiar faces at Swindon when you, when you sign up? Um, I think that addition of Luke Williams was uh, was uh, was fundamental in my success at the club because I'd known how he was coaching and 
the Tottenham link also was was quite pivotal because you see at Tottenham I'd always been the player that helped other players raise their game and you could see that in Swindon as well and I'm always the organiser I'm always the you know uh, the player that keeps the ball moving that gets players in the right positions uh, to succeed and get them the ball and you know to be kind of the the main guy in midfield but at the same time let the others guy the other guys around around me flourish mm. so they needed that Swindon needed that because of the players that were coming in so it was obviously good that there's familiar faces but at the same time I was need, uh, a player like that is kind of needed in that situation because we weren't going to play normal English football at, in those leagues we were going to play passing football and to have players that come from clubs like Tottenham which I, I grew up in you don't want a player in midfield who gets a ball from his right back and puts it around the corner for the striker into the corner of the pitch you need a player that checks his shoulder that turns on it that makes the pass but at the same time there needs to be a coaching element. And Luke Williams was that coaching element because, you know, I was taught those facets uh, in Brighton. I was also taught them in, in, in Tottenham, but more so in Brighton. And if I was turning on the ball and getting the ball from the def- defender, I needed my players in different positions to be in their positions, not too close, not too far, uh, so I can make the right decision to get them the ball. Um so it kind of clicked in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Your first season, you make your debut on the opening day. I know it well because it was the day I got married. So it's, it's an important day. Congrats. Um, Congrats. Thank you very much. I'm still, still hanging in there. Um, but the reason why I bring at the beginning of your town career, maybe it's because you were on a, short t- a short-term deal at the time, but you were getting rave reviews. You were that sort of central defensive midfielder that we've been calling out for for a while. I mean, we had people like Alan McDonald, um, Alan McCormack before that, but th- there was something so casual about your play, like it was effortless. And then we started beating teams like I mean we got to play QPR and we beat them at their place so you got to do Mm. that and we beat Bristol City which we don't do all the time at home and of course we had that game against Chelsea where we weren't disgraced in any way shape or form Chelsea played around with us a little bit but we worked really hard on that Uh, what it was certainly a standout part for us watching you did you feel that that was the case when you first started because you were very accomplished from from the get-go really um yeah i didn't think about it too much or what people were thinking too much because uh at the beginning i started hearing a little bit of rave reviews and then i started then as you play you'll have a get bad game here and there and you had you hear a little bit negative the best thing for a player don't read anything don't watch anything that's about the club, other than the videos, the video analysis, maybe football in general, and uh, your own game, clips of your own game. Um, And that's it. So I kind of understood the impact that I was having at the beginning, but I kind of, you know, pushed myself away from that um, quite early on because my main aim getting into the club was play first-team football, do well, 
hopefully do very well and stay and be a, a main player for the club, um, which I kind of achieved. Yeah. I mean, the first season's a bit of a funny one because we've got the players, but we don't really get the results, do we? What, what, what do you think was behind that? I think it was a building block that first season. I think the players that we had, we were we were there, but we weren't quite there. And the connection was there, but it wasn't quite there. So it's like, um, I always go back, you know, you, you have to look at football like maybe a fighter in the in training camp. You know, I watch quite a bit of UFC. I watch quite a, bo- a bit of boxing. And it's the makeup of the, the journey. So one season could be a training camp for a fighter. And he's trying to get there. But, but what is there? What, what's the, your identity? How do you want to get there? And at the same time, you're coming up against so many different oppositions. And the league is different because different teams got relegated and different teams came up. And the same teams have been here for a couple of years and the same teams haven't been there for a couple of years. It's their first time in that league or they've been up and down. It's understanding everything and the players as well. Because at that time, I know quite a few players were from the era before, the Decanio era, and now they've gone on and there's a little bit of a younger squad and a little bit of a younger experience. How are we going to make, how are we going to, you know, make our footprint in the game? And that just takes a little bit of time. Yeah. Uh, And that takes a little bit of understanding and that takes conversation in the change room. That takes conversation after hard work in the training ground and going into the showers uh, and talking to maybe to like a Darren Ward. I think Darren Ward was, I had quite a few conversations with him and he was very insightful, very intelligent person. And he helped off the pitch quite a lot. So having those conversations and and understanding things and at the same time, you can't have really those conversations with coaches because you can either be in the team or out of the team. Mm. So they're not going to necessarily be your friend. So you need a little bit of the more experienced players around. And Wardy was one of them. And at the same time, you just need a little bit of time to click. Uh, and that's why that first season, we couldn't really push on. If, if I can remember correctly, we played Wolves that season, yeah. correct? And we lost 3-2 away. Correct. So, yeah, that game sticks in my mind because that game is a little bit like our season. We're going against a tough team, probably a top team in that season for that. They won it. I think they may have won it that yeah. season. And we lost 3-2 away. But we had no fear. But at the same time, we didn't have the experience to go and, you know, like a boxer does, jab a little when he's under pressure, stick together a little and not concede when we're under pressure, not get hit too hard on the counter. If a fire's under pressure, maybe, you know, move around the ring. That sort of experience takes a, it doesn't come in one fight or, or, or one game. It maybe takes a season or season and a half to two seasons. And that's the case with that season. That's what happened that season, I believe. Yeah, well, but there's an improvement in the second season course because it's the playoff campaign and again you are one of the influential cogs in this machine that that gets us to Wembley that year and you know there's this thing with the fan base where 
you know, the suggestion, the accusation is for the first half of the season, you're dynamite. You go away to the Asia Cup and you come back and you're not as good as you were before. We'll get into the bits and pieces, whether that's true or fair or not, because I think generally the season does sort of drift away, regardless of Yasser Kassim or, you know, your form, etc. Um I mean, it's it's a great season, which is overshadowed by what happened in the final game. You know, there were some wonderful moments. Sheffield United at home in the league, 5-2. Beating teams like Sheffield United, 5-2, is stuff that Swindon teams don't do. That Bristol City game where we had to... They were by far the best team in the league that year, but we had to really work hard to get that victory. Um, and there were just so many great moments in there, weren't there? Yeah, very much so. Very, very much so. Very, uh, some really good moments, um, some good times when we really clicked uh, on the pitch. And yeah, as a whole, you, I mean, you look at the season and we did well, but I can understand the fans. I can understand their frustrations. And when you become a main player for a, for a football club or any sort of uh, organisation, the frustration and the will come with it, with you as a player, and come onto your shoulders, and the praise will come onto your shoulders. So I can understand where where it's coming from, and I, I think from the outside, it's if you're a fan and you look at it, I can say to the fan, you know what, fair enough that you're thinking that way about the season and about me personally, but at the same time, you have to go. In, to your thought process and think about yourself in your workplace. The workplace isn't that different to a football club. It's still a workplace. Yeah, you might have different uh, genders, for example, in the change room or in the work office, or and you have, might have different ideas because you have um, a different. It's a different industry and different philosophies. But you still have different backgrounds, and you have still have some sort of hierarchy. In, in that organization and to become a success everybody needs to be pulling together and making the right decisions and the main and mainly the right decisions tend to come from the higher up and from my perspective as a player who was doing very well during the season and I understand I was doing very well at the beginning up to January when I left I had a month away and I was having tr- consistent training games, training a massive tournament. It was one of my first international tournament that was big for me. So it was the first experience. So when I came back, it wasn't like, oh, I've been through this. It was my first time. So I haven't had that experience yet. I needed somebody to come along and go, okay, this is how we're going to get you back into it. This is how we're going to talk to you. Uh, or this is how we're going to train you. And this, I came back playing straight away. Uh, I got ill quite quickly, and I was having certain uh, aches and not full-out injuries, but little things. And then I was coming back, and then I was sat down for a game or two at the wrong time. I felt, um, and I can remember it. I think it was MK Dons at home before the Bristol City game where I was left out of the squad against MK Dons and I played for Bristol City, against Bristol City and we lost both. But round then, the momentum had shifted. And that's not, and that's, that wasn't the way it should have been 
done. It needed to, to a certain degree, be taken out of my hand where I was, you know, helped back into the team in the right way. And at the same time, just conversation. How you're feeling? How's it going? What's happening with your body? Where's your mental state? Because looking back, because I spoke to the fitness coach. Uh, I have a Spanish fitness coach for the first, uh, for the Iraqi national team. And he was, I spoke to him. He said, yes, just be careful. I was like, what do you mean just be careful? He said to me, be careful because you've been away for a month and it's been intense. Not just on the pitch, the traveling around Australia, the meetings, because, you know, the Iraqi way is a little bit different to the English way. You know, they have meeting upon meeting, the video analysis upon video analysis, a little bit too much sometimes. And the fans around the country, there's a big population of Iraqis in Australia, just be careful. And I said, and I took it on, but you don't realize it until, oh, hold on a second, I'm, I'm feeling ill. Oh, hold on a second, I'm feeling much better now. This is the time to be pushed on. A couple of weeks back into when I came back. Not the first week, because I think we played the game the first week and we drew 2-2. I can't remember who it was against. But nonetheless, <clears throat> I can understand that frustration because it was a frustration that I had looking back at it because hey you there's only if you're a football player you only got 15 seasons as a pro say you have 15 seasons that's 15 times to make a difference 15 times to make a difference if you're just looking at a number and certain amount of games within that season it may be a lot of games and certain moments in those games but it's still not a long time because you can have a 40-year career in something else, but you're only having 15 years in one career to 20 years if you look after your body and your mind. And those moments count. So I do understand the frustration. And I myself was very frustrated by the end of the season that we didn't go up. Mm. So, so do you think mm. it's fair... Sorry, just moving forward. So do you think it's fair, The although, you know, I, I am you know, as big a Yasser Kassim fan as you'll see in Swindon. So I'm asking questions and I don't necessarily feel that it, it was the case. But would you say there was a particular sort of notion, maybe a burnout after you came back from the Asian Cup? I think it was, I don't think it was burnout. I think if it was uh, looked after in the right way, it wouldn't have been an issue. Yeah. But, the issues were within the club. I haven't mentioned that, and I, I'm still a little bit. I'm grappling with the with the thinking of of what to say on what happened in the within the club. But it's an issue of what happened within the club that uh, affected my situation and the season. Okay, practically the season. So it shouldn't be an issue. A, uh, a guy who's 23, 24, you know, who's playing the thing he loves and getting paid to do so. Mm-hmm. So it's not an issue. Are you? T- are you? T- if you come to me and tell me, you know, to run through a brick wall for something that I love, I will do it. That's yeah. no questions about it. It's just how to work it, how to make sure when you come back what to do, what games to play in, what games to start. I felt there were decisions that were made within the club that 
that that didn't help at all uh, and not just from a personal aspect like say i was just on the in the stands every single game i was out of the squad there were some things that that weren't done properly yeah so was this an individual issue within or was it a team issue in the build up to well in the running of that season um i think well obviously i'm not sure if it's documented but there was issues that within the manager or you know in the in, in the manager's office sure okay and and i think that came down towards the players a little bit yeah i mean and my and i've been co- coached by luke williams so I mean, um, that, at that, the time, that hints oh. that that goes a long way. I mean, the the thing with the the accusation, the rumor, whatever you like to call it, during Mark Cooper's tenure, is that Luke Williams was pulling the strings. Really, he was the one that was doing the football, and Mark Cooper not so much given his role. That's always been the the accusation or the rumor within the fan base. Um, would you say that that is close to accurate, or, or was Mark Cooper the main man in that respect? No, I'll tell you what the accurate issue, what 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 was accurate about it all. Luke is a phenomenal coach, so he was coaching. He's very good at what he does, coaching wise. Yeah, and Mark Cooper was managing, and. At times, selecting the squad. At times, because what I say is there was a lot of influence from outside the club, agents-wise and things like that, that influenced, okay. I believe, selection. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, what was the, the issue with the club? But, yeah, what needed to happen was there needed to be a stamp on it, which is, hey, you take care of this and you take care of that and don't get in each other's way. And don't let ego get in, get in the way. Don't let ego, don't let anybody's ego get in the way. Whether it's me or anybody's ego, don't let that get in the way. You need to make a success because everybody has success, everybody has success. If there's success happening on the football pitch and going up a league, everybody has a success. But that also does raise the question, what kind of city Swindon is and what sort of club Swindon is? Is it ready for success? Because I'm not sure it's ready for success in the sense that the club itself doesn't own. You know, I've gone into business as well nowadays and I have meetings and I sit down and I have talks and conversations. And you look at Swindon, they don't have their own training ground. I'm not sure if they have one now. And their stadium's not owned by the football club or the company that owns the football club. So the assets are the players. So they become a selling, buying, selling club. And I believe there was too many issues surrounding that at that time. And that affected, definitely, it definitely affected the situation. And for me personally, if I could have it again, I was hoping Coops would make some different decisions with myself. Mm. Um because my agent wasn't sitting down getting in his ear and saying do this for yes and do that. I was doing it on the pitch. But you just needed to do it the right way at the right time around those months just after the Asia Cup. So we can just make sure we don't... I didn't want to get out of the uh, the first and second spot. I didn't want to get into the playoffs. I knew we are good enough to get there. But there were decisions that weren't 
that weren't correct. One of them in my mind is the MK Dons game. We played like two defenders in midfield. We played, uh, um, if I remember correctly, we played... Sam Ricketts and Jack uh, Stevens, yeah. In midfield, yeah. And I was, what's going on? That's, that's not how to beat an MK Dons. That's just not how to beat an MK Dons. Uh, and that mo- that shifted our momentum because we had Bristol City the next week and we lost 3-1. And oh, hey, I got on the pitch and there's some nice things. That's not how you win football games. That's not how you have a winning team. And that's the frustration. But the, the fans don't know that. They just look from the outside in. And fair enough, because football is an, it's an arena for entertainment. So they don't need to know every single thing. And they shouldn't. And it doesn't need to always be a drama. It needs to be something where a father and a son, a mother and a daughter, a family or a person or friends or whoever come and just enjoy the spectacle. So it's on us, the ones who are getting paid to do it, to have that nuance and of what to do and the knowing of what to do in those times. A 23-year-old player, I'm not sure will know that, a 24-year-old player, but coaches, owners, those sort of people should know that and should know how to direct it in the right way so we win. Um, and that didn't happen, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I mean, I've gone on the record many a time to say those back-to-back 3-0 losses against MK Dons and Bristol City are what sort of changed what our destiny was for that season, so to speak, because had we won those games or at least got positive results, we were well within a shower of trying to squeeze into the autos, but it wasn't to be. And we ended up in these playoffs where, you know, the, I talked to talk about the word overshadow quite a lot for this season, because the first leg is glorious. You know, it's how playoffs mm. should be end to end and we snatch it right at the end and we are composed. And the 5-5, five, five, and you're the first person that I've had on this podcast who played in that game. I've had somebody who was an unused sub, but no one who actually played on it in it. Who was that? It was Ty. Ty Belford was on the oh, okay. he came on. Nice. Uh, and he's a lovely guy, but you played the game. And there's this real sort of feeling of not quite division. Everybody acknowledges it as a hugely entertaining game of football but myself I walked out of the county ground that day thinking we are not going to win at Wembley if we play like that because it, it was it was as entertaining as it was it was a bit of a horror show as well in terms of uh, closing out a game and things like that what are your memories of those two playoff games because they're so contrasting in discipline oh yeah no they okay I well that's that's actually a good thing that you said that it was the second game was a bit of a blur but I think we knew we won it in the first game, mm. or at least I did. I was going into the game with a little bit of an ankle injury. And actually, the first pass they made back to me from the kickoff, I kind of rolled it. And I was like, oh, my God. But we knew when, when I knew when Nath, before Nath scored, that before he, Nath scored, I went over to the bench. And you see, this is one of the things about the division and the ego and things like that that was kind of getting summarized in that situation when I went over to the bench I spoke to Luke I wasn't speaking to anybody else but Luke so I spoke to Luke and I said it's 1-1 what do you think about the situation he goes yes go for the win I said no problem so I went on the pitch and I just had a feeling that Nath was going to be the guy 
So I went over to Nath. Nobody told me anything, but I went over to Nath and I said, I'm going to get you the ball, Nath. Doesn't matter. Just make sure you're going to win. You're get, just make sure you win the game for us. You're going to win the game for us. I go, in the next 10 minutes, you need to be the winner. And he went over. Uh, if I remember correctly, he, he got the winner. I mean, things, my history of things aren't very good, but those are the moments I kind of remember. Mm. So he got the ball, he scored, we went crazy. And I think we, I felt like we were going to win both games that day uh, because of that. Um, but the second game, it was just, it was a little bit of a spectacle. It was end to end. It was just weird. It was, it was one of those games where like, you can't really put anything on it. When you say you walk out of the counter ground and you go, hold on a second. Um, we're not going to win if we play like that in Wembley. Fair enough. But it was just one of those games. I already knew we'd won it from the first leg, just by the feeling, just by knowing that we can be 1-1 away at Sheffield under that sort of uh, pressure and that sort of you know uh, atmosphere and still just play good football. We were getting on it. We were putting the ball down, just passing it. We just weren't. We weren't afraid to do anything. Uh, personally, I wasn't. I was, I've always been that type of player, and we were just finding the right areas, and we were sticking together. Nobody, even when we were under pressure, we weren't, you know, feeling heavy. We were there for each other. So I felt like we were gonna go through. So the second game was just a little bit. It was an uh, anomaly. It was bonkers, wasn't it? It was, it it was, was bonkers. bonkers yeah. And I, I remember correctly, Nathan Thompson got injured, right? He, yeah, his hamstring was that's, that's, Yeah, that's, that, a, that's the biggie. That's the big moment, really. Probably the defining yeah. moment of the playoffs. Um, we score loads of goals in the first few minutes. And that really sort of sets the tone of the game because Sheffield United have got a push us and we're we're just sticking to our game plan of playing the ball around we're, we're you know we're not as intense and we're getting them on the counter attack so it was set up really for goals that that game but Nathan Thompson going out injured sets the tone really because again I speak as a fan as an outsider looking in and I see Nathan Thompson's injury and I see him after that game and then I see him named in the starting 11 at Wembley mm. and I was thinking to myself are you kidding and I've got to be honest you know, I walked into Wembley in the same sort of mood as I was. And I'm not a pessimistic football fan at games at all. You know, I, I'm, you know, enjoy the moment. You don't go to Wembley that much. But there was this feeling going into Wembley that day where people just weren't as enthused and they weren't as boisterous and, 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 and excited as we usually are when we go to these games. And then when I saw that Nathan was playing, and I, Nathan Thompson was a fantastic servant for the club. And if he was fit, I'm sure he was. But... I didn't believe it. I could not believe he started. Well, rightly so. Rightly so. I think he got into the team uh, during the training camp. We went to Birmingham or somewhere in a nice hotel with nice grounds and stuff. And you don't realise that at the time because you didn't realise the extent of his injury. Uh, but yeah, that should never have been... Um, uh, that he shouldn't. I don't think he should have been playing at that time because it was a serious. It was pretty serious injury, and you couldn't make the recovery in time, and it shouldn't. He shouldn't have been put in that position, and you could tell after what happened in the first few minutes of of the playoff final. Um, I don't know what what caused that to happen. Why he was 
if I was a player, I'd be I'd want to play no matter what you know as a player. But sometimes it needs to be taken out of your hand, as previously demonstrated beforehand. When I come back from the Asia Cup, you have to step in and go. Hold on a second. He's just come back from an Asia Cup. He may not know what's a yes, no answer to certain questions. We need to take deliberate action to help him come back. But that's what happened towards the end uh, or the last couple of months. I don't know what happened during January. I was away. So I, the egos might have been massaged wrong or conversations might have been had and people weren't getting enough praise here or maybe people weren't, there was a power shift there. I don't know what it was, but it caused decisions to go wary. That's not the right way to go about things. You need to take it out of the hands of the player. And as an organization, you need to make sure the team is in the best position to win a football game. And we were clearly not in the right position to win a football game against Preston. Because um, you could see it, I guess, coming. They were going long. We were trying to play football and we, you know, certain decisions for certain players weren't correct. Unfortunately, unfortunately. And that was our only chance because by then we're out of the, we're in the playoffs. We've won the games against Sheffield or we've gone through against Sheffield and that was the game. We needed to win that game. So that if any game you can't make a mistake in, it's that game. <laughs> Well, yes, yes. I mean, and it doesn't go. It doesn't go to plan, and we're thoroughly um, outplayed and 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 stuffed in that. And I, I don't think I can remember such sort of anger after after a game as I saw in the fa- in the, in the stands. To be fair, and some of your teammates got you know unnecessary abuse. I would say, you know, people like Jack Stevens. I remember getting an absolute. Torrid, you know, I don't think, was very good. think you know what I don't think we were out you say we were outplayed yes you look at it or you say the fans say we were outplayed and they were very frustrated I understand again I go back to that point yeah. that the fans they come to watch you and they come to London they're getting on the trains in the cars uh, they're having drink they're having food they're spending the money they're trying to have a good evening out and see a spectacle and hope that their team goes through mm. And that's all, all you ask for from from your fans because you want their support. At the same time, you, you can kind of look at a team like Chelsea and you're playing Chelsea. Chelsea are at such a, or at that time, at such an elite level. I learned so much in that game. I mean, I could only imagine playing week in, week out against that sort of opposition, what it will do to you to help you become a better player. Preston wasn't like that. I can say Chelsea at times knew what they were doing, had a plan, and did it. Preston, we can affect it that game. Chelsea, I don't think so. I don't think you you can stop a Chelsea counter-attack. I don't think you can pass around the Chelsea. You needed something else. You needed to play against them 10, 15, 20 times to learn. You need to be in the Premier League to learn. You can't learn play, playing against you know a Preston. But at that time when we played against Preston, I just think we made the wrong decisions. And if somebody's saying something about Jack Stevens or somebody's saying about something else or whatever, it's not on their shoulders. When the player goes down after a couple of minutes and from that resultant free kick, 
a goal happens and you're 3-0 down at half-time, there is a, an overlook that there was things that were, were done wrong on a bigger scale than just the player on that day. There was. And it's... Uh, and it was unfortunate, and I could because I could feel I can I still have feelings from the game because I'm a player who who really understands the feeling on the pitch, uh, and and that's part of my makeup, and we couldn't get anything going, yeah. and that meant that was there was something fundamentally wrong if you can't get something going because that means there's more players that are just not there than there are players that are there. And we just couldn't get things going. And we couldn't make the passes. We were blindsided, pretty much. Um, and that was the feeling. And that's what, hap- that's what happened, ultimately. They got early goals. They knew a plan, and they stuck to it. Uh, but even after the 4-0 loss, I didn't think, oh, we couldn't have beat. I was so, so down after that. I was so, so down after that, because it wasn't a team that we couldn't beat. If it was a team that I knew, like, oh, hold on a second. Fair enough. This is the better fighter. He has something that's better than me. Or collectively, they are better than us. I didn't believe so. So that's what was that's what frustrated me. What was the changing room like immediately after that game? Very, very down. Um, for, for, on my part, frustration. Um, down. Um, players... Some players were emotional. Um, hey, you get into the championship, different level. Yeah. Different. Some of the players that I was really close friends with, hey, different experience and bigger journey or bigger experience. And it's a different journey onwards and upwards. And that wasn't the case. So it was, it was tough. Yeah, I, I think I can honestly say that it's only in the last maybe few months, maybe this season, where for many people, the wounds from that game are beginning to heal because we've had a very good season with uh, current manager, Richie Wellens, who has done a very good job um, to try and get the fans involved back on side. And I think what really sort of got the, stuck the boot in after that Wembley loss is of course the side just, just fell apart. Everyone left, didn't they? I mean, you've got the lone players all returned, then Mass and Ben Gladwin are both sold within days of, mm. of that. I mean, that really, I mean, a bit of me was just like at the time, like, come on, give us a week or so to just, you know, to yeah. reevaluate. But they were, they were, you know, scarfs above their head within a week, less than a week after that game. And it was just, it just felt, it was a horrible, horrible time, wasn't it? Yeah, I can imagine that for, you know, as you say, and you're a fan, uh, difficult. Mm-hmm. But players do come and go. Yeah, and I believe, I do believe you need to make sure that your organisation is made for those players to come and go. And as you know, we don't really make it to those heights again because, yeah, we just... Oh, don't, don't get me wrong. Swindling. You Swindon went in that position too. Yeah, you said it yourself. You guys only have a 15-year career. You know, if, if opportunities come up, 
then they come up and also teams are set up to sell on players. You know, that's that's nature of the beast. So I More so Swindon than other players because remember, as an ownership, you don't own the stadium, you don't own the gra- uh, training ground, you don't have assets. Yeah. So when you don't have assets, your players become your assets. So, you know, sometimes you can't rely too much on the fans coming in and out. If you, if you know you're getting 20,000 fans or 15,000 fans every single home game, that's a different case. Yeah. But when you don't know that's the situation, you need to rely on other things. And people are, sometimes people get into football as a, or most time, as a business to make money. So it's not necessarily, oh, let me get a football club and just enjoy a weekend. It's actually a business. Um, so you, when you don't have control of assets, who 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 are the assets at the football club players or coaches and the the bringing in and bringing out players but you have to create a system for that and to create a system you have to have a training ground to have a training ground you have to make sure you have the money to buy that asset and and not rent it and upkeep it and then hey i need a stadium or a hotel around the stadium as well all these things and i'm not sure swindon is at that at that level, unfortunately, uh, um, maybe I've heard, maybe it's different, but I've heard because, you know, Swindon is a town and it's not a big city, it doesn't get that sort of backing. I'm not sure. Well, we, but, yeah, you're yeah. probably right. I mean, we still don't have our own training ground, although it's been long in the pipeline. We we are in the process of co uh, buying the uh, the stadium with the uh, with the supporters club, but you know current times and that is a long winded affair. But yeah, you, you're quite right. Five years on, we're still in the same situation as we were before at time of recording. And your season three, it, it we it's kind of like a, not nothing season, but it, this is where when you say things like who's in control of the bigger picture, when you were saying agents and things like that. When I look at the who signs in this season. I see players with no experience of the Football League and minimal experience in Europe coming in, playing mm. and going, and that sounds like agents bringing in players and it not working out. Did, did, did it have that sort of feeling from you as a as a sort of more senior player at that stage? Yeah, quite a bit, quite a bit. I think because, you know, we, uh, we, we, we did well the previous season and everybody said like, I, I, not everybody. I, I think this is what the outlook was. Hey, we can do pretty much anything and still have that level of success. That's not the case. You do sometimes get lucky and you get a player like me and another player in midfield, uh, like a Ryan Mason, a Mass, um, a certain player in, uh, as a striker, uh, John Obika, Andy Williams. You know, we had now range at the time. You kind of get lucky, but you kind of have to take the names out and have a system in place uh, of a certain pedigree of player. And we got a little bit fortunate that in that season, we didn't have the experience as players, but we had the success of players with experience. And they thought maybe the people who were making the decisions thought we can do that with any sort of player. With, that doesn't have the experience. That's not the case. It's a develop. It's a develop development. You know, we go back to the first season. People were having those conversations. That the people were having the ups and downs. 
maybe a few bust-ups here and there that were good for the team. And we were getting to the next season. You can't then go back to season one in season three without that experience, without the word, the conversations of Darren Ward. Yeah, I'm a little bit more of a mainstay, but I'm not a Wardy. Wardy was in his 30s with a family and and the experience of, you know, a man. I was becoming a man, but I wasn't exactly that sort of... So I can't sit down and speak to somebody with no experience and talk him through the situation uh, that I was getting at that time. So, you know, they maybe thought, hey, we'll bring some others and, and if we just have a little bit of success and have some more players to sell... That'll be great. But that's not what you want. You don't want to just have a bit of success. You want to go all out in competitive sport. You either go for the win or you're second. It's simple. You either go up a division or you stay a division. I mean, you you need to create something that's long-term. And by then, the fractions that were happening within the club, it was becoming kind of like, hey, this is too much. People weren't getting along. Yeah, and uh, this is uh, the season, that's... of course, that Mark Cooper leaves. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, all... Mark Cooper, he, he has the same reputation at Forest Green Rovers now, where, you know, when things go wrong, he's, he's, not, he's not the greatest, he's not the most articulate, at, at, or he's not the best at hiding his emotions, and he gets quite sharp, and, you know, he's, he's not the greatest interview e in the world and he doesn't win fans over and it was getting that way and then of course at Millwall um, it ends and it, it sort of was coming wasn't it yeah yeah it was coming when I saw it I watched the Millwall game um, I wasn't playing that game and I watched it um, I may have had an injury at the time um, it was coming and the situation had become a little bit difficult within the club. And I think it's just, you know, instead of people putting their egos aside, it became a little bit too egotistical and uh, it affected the the playing side for sure. Yeah. Mm. At the end of the day, I don't know what the decisions were made for the footballing team on on Coops's part, on Mark Cooper's part. But I knew certain decisions that were made with me that I didn't like. And I'm the type of guy to go in and go, hey, this is wrong. Because I'm not the most... As a player, you have to be quite a little bit selfish for your own career, but I'm not the most selfish. I go out, even my playing style shows it. It's for other players yeah. to flourish. I get the ball. You know, Sheffield United, I'm going to Nathan... I'm not going, oh, hey, I'll go past four players and put a top bins. I'm going to to Nathan Byrne, hey, you're going to be the winner. I'll make sure to get you the ball. Or I'll talk to other, the other midfielder and go, hey, stay in this place, I'll get it to you because then Burnley will be free, we'll, we'll get the ball to him. Things like that. So, you know, I expect that from, the, from a coach as well to come to me and go... And make the right decision. And usually it feels right. When it doesn't feel right, you go, hmm, I don't think that's being done. Pro- I don't think I'm being looked after properly. You know, I'm training hard. I'm doing the right thing. I'm out of the team. Or I'm on the bench. 
And sometimes it's the other way. Some people don't train properly, don't work hard, and they're in the team. And there were so many factors. And it just, it, that's what ultimately led to that happening. Finally for Smith, who finishes it once and for all. You're listening to the Low Strangers podcast, proudly sponsored by the STFC Official Supporters Club. What's it like? What's it like being managed by the owner of a football club? And you can go into as much detail with, as this as you as you can, but was that weird? Um, at the time, not so much, but probably looking back at it, yeah, a little bit. Because, But I can understand um, Lee's personality. Uh, so he, he's the type of guy that you can just, if he's in the office, you just knock on the door, hey, and I want to have a conversation. And I want to have a like a proper conversation. None of that business, oh this, or you know, quite politically correct. Not politically correct. What would the word be? Just you know how a work environment is. No, sit down, yes. What what do you want to say? Talk to me. Uh, X, Y, and Z. Yeah, let's. I'll explain this to you. Uh, still there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, yeah, talk to me. What do you want to talk about? Um, what, what's, what's on your mind? So he came and then took over because he thought, hey, I've got that sort of personality and I've got that relationship. But he realized it's better to be an owner maybe for his business or or his lifestyle than to, to, to be a coach. Because you, you can't have a relationship with an owner at a certain level, and then he becomes a coach. You, you, he's either the coach, and you're, and he's a mentor to you, and at times your friend, or at times somebody that gives you a bollocking, or you know, it's not. It, it, it kind of mixes up um, in your mind as a young man to go. Hold on a second. What's this guy? He's, he, a month ago, I was sitting down with him talking about. Hey, what's going? What's going to happen with the club? What's the contract? Uh, was there a bid? Uh, you know, talking financials, talking business and stuff. And then the next time he's he's talking about tactics with you. It's not generally going to work out. It may work out one day. One day where you have maybe a footballer who's an owner of a football club and he knows how to manage things in that sense. But it's not going to work out at that time. So it was a bit weird when he kept looking back at it. At the time, hey, you just want to do well. Yeah. As a footballer, you just want to do well. So you're not thinking too much about what's happening. In the moment, you're thinking about how do I get this win? How do I train well today? That's my ethos. Some players, no. They, 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 they might be thinking, and it might be a positive for them or a negative. They might be thinking about things and knowing that this is a bit weird in that moment. I wasn't thinking like that. I was just thinking just to win a football game. Yeah. And it's clearly temporary. And during this time, it really did feel that Lee Power wanted Luke Williams to be the manager. And Luke Williams didn't really want to be the manager. So we got in Martin Ling. And things seemed to be getting better under Martin before unfortunately he had to resign um, that that could have been a big moment for Swindon I feel 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. I um, I think there needed to be somebody at the head a little bit, like Martin Link, and I think his personality was very much, hey, go with the flow. I think there was less ego. I think there were certain situations that were happening with him uh, in his life. Uh, I don't know too much about, but he came across as very endearing, uh, compassionate, down to earth, and you can connect with that. And Luke was doing the coaching. So I think that sort of combination would have worked well. Um, but I guess uh, um, Link had uh, other, other, uh, other, he wanted something else. Yeah, well, of course, he, he had to leave because of mental health issues. But yeah. he's since, you know, found his place in football with Leighton Orient in more of a director of football role. And I do wonder yeah. if he had a role similar to that, what he has now with Ross Embleton at Leighton Orient, maybe that would have been the way forward instead of putting so much pressure on Luke Williams to do something that I don't think, and you might know way more than me, you might not know anything more than I do. It just seems like something that Luke didn't want. But if someone puts a five-year contract in front of you, well, you, you, in this industry, you, you can't turn that down. Yeah, yeah. You could, yeah, it's difficult to turn it down. But at the same time, you've got to... Uh, to be fair, I don't know, because at that time, you kind of see the writing on the wall a little bit. You see how the how the club... Is, is, is being looked, not looked after, as in how the players are coming in and out, what's the long-term plan. It's a little bit like, hey, how, do, how am I, what situation am I being put in? And yes, Luke can, his coaching is very good. But at the same time, Coaching isn't all of... You're not just coaching players on the football pitch. You're actually managing people. Uh, and it's a great thing and it's a bad thing because you have human beings that you're managing and you're managing their dreams and aspirations. And at the same time, you have to give them doses of, of reality. You have to give them some positiveness, some negative. And you're doing that over a period of a year or season, and you're doing it constantly. And the great ones do it very well. But at the same time, they have help from the top to the bottom. So we're talking about from ownership, having a great, great, or, or, or uh, an organizational skill that's phenomenal. And then you have directors of football, then you have assistant coaches, and that's around the coach. Assistant coaches, then first team medical and first team uh, fitness and all of that. That wasn't the case there at Luke. So he wasn't necessarily put in the best situation. And at the same time, you know, you have to, okay, so I've got a five-year contract, but it's five years for not being in the best situation. It's not necessarily the best. But I don't know. I, I can't talk for somebody else. And at the same time, I can't talk for... Uh, what situation anybody is in or you're in or I'm in. You know, I can't talk for somebody else's situation of how they're going to live their life or what contract they're going to take and the financials and things like that. When you're young, 
you're like, hey, I want to win football games and I want a bigger contract and a, an even bigger contract and I want to go bigger and I want to win more football games and I want to win everything. But that's not how life is. Life is a is a bunch of up and downs. Yeah. I, I was told that. And uh, I was told that by John McDermott. He said, you know, in football, my academy director at Tottenham, he said, in football, you're probably going to have more downs than ups. And he's, and it's right. You're going to have a lot of down down days because you're not always going to be, you know, a success throughout your career. So I can't really talk for somebody else. Maybe they had a lot of failures. And at that time, hey, there's a contract and that could look after me and my family. And, oh, hey, I'm having a child. I, I don't know. But at the end of the day, if I'm just looking at the, at the picture and I go where it's going, even then I could go and say, I'm not sure it's going the right way because it's just the club isn't... We've got lucky in the first two seasons and at the same time we've worked our butts off. But is it going the right way? Not really. Because personally, I was still having meetings and saying, hey, I think maybe it's time to, to move on. Um, and what do you think? And I was having those conversations with Lee. And I think that's one of the, the good aspects that he has is, like I said, come into the office and let's talk about it. Um, but we could have talked about more about maybe the long term, looking back at it, because... If you go up with it doesn't matter what club you as long as you're going up and it's being organized in a winning culture and at that time after season two and the third one it was a bit shaky it was very shaky to be honest it, it's interesting where he's, he's talking about transfers because you know for many many fans like i said at, at the beginning you know i did polls uh, over the new year for the team of the decade and you got in comfortably um for the central midfield role so there are lots of people out there that still hold you in very high regard but i do wonder if your legacy would have been stronger had you say left after season two or at least after season three because then you would have avoided the the horror show that was season four there were always rumors about really quite established clubs or at least Premier League clubs, Swansea being the major name from, from memory, who were after you. Was that ever the did that ever get to you? Did 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 you ever get your agent or did your agent say, look, there are teams that, that really do want you because that would have been so hard to turn down or not try and push through if possible. That was it was very much very close. Very, very much very close. Um and now I don't know the details of what what transpired behind closed doors, but if I had any idea, and I don't know whether it's the right idea or not, at the end of the day, I'm coming from League One and a team that plays football in a certain way that other teams don't. So I didn't have a wide array of options. And Swansea was one of the options. But at the same time, it's like... In, in a working environment you don't just go and put all your eggs in one basket you're hoping you have three four different options with my style I didn't have that so I had to come right and I had to go come at the right time because in football there are windows in which to sign in work no you can leave a company and go to another company anytime throughout the year not in football. You, uh, there are contracts, there's laws, there's the FA, there's the FIFA, there's UEFA. 
and it just didn't. Uh, there was, there was, uh, there was very much interest from Swansea and there was a case of some people I mean I don't know what, the, what, I, would, what I can say it, it should in my eyes it should have been done but it didn't get done because I don't think they were willing to buy a player from, from League One that's what my thoughts were and however much money it was my belief is that Lee it's not going to sit down. I mean, I had a conversation with him. He said, he did say to me, I'm not going to sit down and, and let them decide how they're going to take you on the cheap. But at the same time, I'm not going to stop a player from going to the next level if it's possible for him. That's just not who who I am. That's what he told me. So I have to believe him that he was being truthful and that nothing transpired behind closed doors. And I don't believe anything transpired behind closed doors that would have stopped that other than Swansea weren't probably willing to to bid high enough or just take me on as a player maybe because at the time it was a Premier League club they may have had I was hearing maybe a different ownership would buy the club um, so of course it would get into your head a little bit and you'd hope you can make that next step but at the same time, if it didn't come, I still live on uh, and I still try my best uh, wherever I am. And that was the case. Yeah. So so as we begin to sort of close on your career at Swindon, what, what went wrong in that final year for for the club? Well, what the, everything that was happening uh, previous to it was kind of leading up to it. The foundations were was solid but they hadn't built on top of the foundation you know season one season two you you can't yes football is a six month window which is you there's a player that's playing well for six months and then gets sold on on the next window and maybe has a year left or two years or has three years so the, the amount that he's bought for is a lot more he's a tra- transfer a free transfer but there needs to be a sort of system that is long term like you look at these corporations that are you know multi-million multi-billion dollar multi-billion pound corporations they have a long term strategy that's what you need you can't have a short term strategy and hope in the long term that it's going to work out so it was a bit of a short term from being inside of it you know bringing players with with no experience and at the same time having players that had no experience, that have a bit of experience, but aren't ready to give it to the player that doesn't have any experience, that's a difficult change room. That's not, that's a change room that's a little bit, it's like a a ship without, um, what's the thing that drives it, the propeller? It's just sitting. There isn't the propeller or, or the captain that can that can guide it a certain way. Even with the coach being a good coach or, or a manager that's, you know, being a good manager, it's difficult. And at the same time, we didn't we didn't have that at the manu- in the manager's office. We had certain things that were that there was um, there were factions and there was friction. 
in that office around even from the fitness play uh, office and the f- uh, medical office there was friction so all that added up to you know a time where where we weren't going to get results yeah or difficult to get results yeah i think i think the term for us in many ways is that we for a couple of years we were sleepwalking to league 2 weren't we it was it was it, it it just seemed so inevitable and it was such a long drawn out season even though it started well with course you scoring the winning goal on the open day and and yeah I think that was yeah. pretty much the highlight to be honest it, it really didn't it really didn't kick on from there at all and it was just we had lone players coming in we had those Chelsea guys where you know Dabo was good Colkit had ability but he just it didn't click and Izzy Farouz was already probably at the tail end of his career at, at that point even at such a young age and we were reliant on these players and they didn't you know when they don't do the business it, it just results in in negative you know outcome doesn't it yeah yeah and at the same time what I was talking about before when there was you know a little bit rudderless that ship it's difficult to hold people accountable you need a little bit uh, you need a place where you can hold people accountable they're not doing their own thing hey yes we know what you can do. Do that. Don't do this. Hey, ex- this player, we know you can do this. Do that. Don't do this. Don't go on your own mission. And that's what happened at Swindon. Everybody went and did their own thing because previously you needed to do your own thing to get that move to a bigger club. You know, somebody was in your ear. Maybe it was an agent. Maybe it was somebody else. Hey, let's help this guy. And if you score enough goals, you'll get to your destination. I've had people come up to me and say that at times as well. When I was at Swindon, they said to me, yes, if you can get a little bit more forward and you can score a little bit more, hey, I can maybe make a move for you. I was like, well, that's like, I can understand why they'd say that. But at the same time, that's not how to build a winning team. And I believe that was happening with other players. And that was kind of the, pretty much the case when these players came in. When these new set of players came in, they saw what had happened previously. They saw what previous loan players had, how it helped them to come in and do well. And even players that had signed do well and get moved on. And they thought, hey, let me just repeat this. But it kind of went into overdrive. And when it went into overdrive, you couldn't hold them accountable and go, hey, you still need to do your job. It's not all about you or it's not all about individuals. It's all about the team. But you couldn't do that as a player because there were the setup from up top was a little bit difficult. They weren't holding the players accountable. So you can't... It's difficult to hold a player accountable when somebody above you is not holding him accountable. Retrospectively, yeah. because of, of course you played the majority of your career so far with Swindon, especially in terms of games. Um, mm. d- does that leave a bitter taste, what was going on behind the scenes in what was ultimately a pretty decent career at Swindon? Uh, 
yes and no. It leaves a bit of taste because it's like I want success. So if you were to tell me, hey, I signed on day one, and from day one to to the last day, it was a success. It's that's amazing. Um, so, uh, um, but at the same time, it's the experience and understanding that if things like that don't happen, how do you realize what to do right in your own life or what to do right in your life when you go to another club? Because you haven't seen it. You've just seen success. If you just see success and you go to another club and it's like Swindon towards the end, you go, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to react. I don't know how to be proactive in putting out fires and and making sure the ship is going the right way. So yes, I'm bitter that we didn't that I didn't maybe affect it as well as I could. But at the same time, if I don't learn and I don't understand that situation, I I won't take it into another club. Um, and I felt I've taken it into another club uh, uh, further on, which was uh, in Sweden, Arebro. Not so much Northampton, but Sweden for sure. So you have to go through those experiences, and uh, and those experiences teach you a lot. And that's why failure teaches you. Yeah, you, you fail to hold people accountable in, in season four, in, in which you held them accountable in season two. But if you didn't know that, if you didn't do that, how do you know how to, where the mistakes were happening? How do you know how to go through a journey or a phase where you go, okay, yes, you were hard on yourself because it didn't work out. But at the same time, don't be too hard because now you've learned from it. Hey, you can take it into another environment, another football club. Yeah, as, as you mentioned there, after Swindon, you join Northampton Town. It doesn't go to plan. And then after that, you go to Sweden, you're playing for Raybro. And then up until recently, I don't know if you're still there, you were playing in Iraq with Erbil, weren't you? Um, how How is the football journey treating you at the moment? Because again, from an outsider, it looks like you're struggling for games. It looks like you're struggling... Um, when you're moving around, but you know, a Ray Bro, they're top flight. That's, that's, you know, a pretty established, played plenty of European football club. How, how are you finding football now? No, it's, uh, it's, it's good. I mean, um, like you said, I went to Northampton and the plan wasn't really put in place to help me succeed as, as it was in, in Swindon. And that's why I'm kind of grateful for the time I spent in Swindon, especially towards the beginning, at the beginning, because it was put in place, you know, for me to succeed in the way that I play. Uh, Northampton, not so much. But then I went to Rebro, and and when I signed for Rebro, they were already in their season because uh, they they play uh, during the summer. So I didn't really have a pre-season under them. And I, I got into the squad. I played really well. Uh, and I enjoyed it there. I was hoping to stay there. Uh, unfortunately, certain things, uh, you know, uh, happened there that I wasn't willing. Uh, it wasn't the best fit for me, for my ambition and for where I wanted to go uh, in life. So we didn't agree on signing uh, after the short-term deal. Mm-hmm. But 
when well, when I did go there, hey, they weren't in the best position. They weren't doing too badly, but they needed to stay up in the league and go further on. And I went in there. And from the ex- previous experiences, like we said at Swindon, I took that in there and helped the change room, uh, helped the coaching staff, and uh, became a mainstay in the uh, at the team in a very short period of time and got some results. We should have got better results, but at the same time, from a personal point of view, I wasn't, I, I hadn't had a pre-season with the club and I wasn't there you know, for a year or two to, to just get my foot in in a new, in a new culture. But then they, after that, I did move to Iraq. And that choice was made a little bit because, you know, when you play for a club, like even in the top league in Sweden, the window of opportunity in football is kind of limited. It's a six, to mo- six months to six months window. So from one transfer window to the, to the next, and the main transfer window is the summer transfer window. And when I signed for Rebro, it was the summer transfer window. And when I left, it was the January transfer window. And that's not the main one. So when you want to go to another European club, it's a little bit difficult because teams are looking for a very, very specific player just to add a player here or a player there or maybe a big name that comes along and they go, yes. Or we don't know, somebody come, they get somebody on loan that's come back from a big injury. It's a little bit more difficult in the January transfer window. So I said, so I got, I had one or two offers and the one in Iraq was the one that was tabled firmly, you know, and put to me firmly. And I said, hey, if I go back there, I can play and let's see what, what it can, what the country can give me and what that league can give me and what I can give to it. Because... At my age, I needed to I need to start building as well for the future, and I wanted to go somewhere where I can make an impact, and they can give me that sort of backing because previously at Northampton, and even at Arebro, which was a sh- not their fault, but at the same time as a short term deal, they couldn't give me that backing. They I wasn't given that backing the same as the first few seasons at Swindon, and I thought I would get that uh, in Iraq which I did, but then Corona hit. So I felt like if I signed in Iraq at this time in my career, I can build outside football and within football, take a club and really push it forward because of the sort of name that I have in Iraq, people are kind of going to look towards you for leadership. And it was the best time for me to go there and lead because I'm, you know, I want to lead the football club to new heights. And if I could get the club that I signed for, I'd be uh, into the top three and then into the AFC, which was the champ- which is the Asian Champions League. Yeah. Um, and then go ahead and try to win that and then go ahead and build my business outside football. That's what I've been looking for, which is a football academy. And I'm also in the gym business as well. So, and, you know, the health business, that would be great. So that was the time. So from outside in, it may look a little bit like he hasn't got the same run as he had in Swindon, which is understandable. But I'm getting there, and I'm uh, and I had a short term deal with Airbnb, but I'm hoping the next the next deal uh, will be a little bit more 
have a little bit more stability uh, for the future. Yeah. Well, this has gone as well as I wanted it to, plus more. I really appreciate mm. this. I've just got a couple more questions and then we'll call okay. it a night. Because okay. we can't ignore the success that you had with Iraq in the Asian Cup in 2015. Mm-hmm. And what we saw as fans there is, you know, you had that moment with the goal, but you suddenly, you know, everything related to Swindon was just swarmed by Iraqi football fans that were just so happy. And as you quite rightly point out there, you had yourself and is it, um, Justin Miran as well coming in from the United States. So you yeah. had sort of players who had spent most of their lives outside of the country coming in and making an impact. And it created that fourth place finish which was just incredible as well. And you had your moment, but it was, it was a great team effort, wasn't it? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I made my debut for Iraq in the final uh, qualification game for that Asia Cup in 2015, and we had to win it. And that was my debut. That was my first start. And I made the start, and we won 3-1 against China. And then when we got to the Asia Cup, yeah, the players from outside, we had a player from Sweden, Ahmed Yassin, we had Justin Miram from the US. And it was it was great. It was a great experience. And more so it's because the country of my birth and you're playing for them and you're putting their shirt on and that sort of feeling and environment around that is special. So and we did well. I was hoping hopefully we'd go all the way and win it, but unfortunately we we didn't. But it was just a great experience. Yeah. But that comes with a lot of expectation, though, doesn't it? There was, a, again, outsider looking in with no dog in that fight. There just seemed to be so much expectancy on you to become, as we affectionately dubbed it, the Iraqi Perlo. But it, it did seem very intense as well. Yeah, intense in part because, you know, Iraqi Iraqi fans love uh, their footballers. Like we said, it's the main sport. It's what everybody plays. And it's like, if the, if any story is, is an inspirational story, it's a player coming from the streets of Iraq and going to all the way to the top and doing well for himself. So they hold you in high regard. They love their football and they want success with that. Mm. And at the end of the day, on the football pitch, what is success? It's results. And you need to get the right results. Um, and you need to have those, within those right results, magical moments will happen. You know, goals or great defensive moments or, you know, saving the penalty or, 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 or scoring the penalty or free kick. That keeps a nation alive because you know they haven't had too much to to support, or the ha- or the country hasn't had too much to succeed on. So if their footballing team does that, then they love whoever's in it, um, and especially players that aren't living in that country, they're outside, they're popping in and out of the country. They don't get to see them or meet them so much. So. Um, yeah, a lot of pressure, but at the same time, hey, it's it's always nice to have that pressure because it makes you feel alive. Yeah, yeah. 
let's let's finish on Swindon then, and let's end it positively as well, because it was a magnificent shift you put in for Swindon Town. I don't care what anybody says if they're listening to this and, and they don't they don't rate the contribution that you made, because I think it was it was significant and. In my opinion, you are one of the best players of a generation to play in in the, in that in that role. What what are your happiest Thank memories you. of playing for Swindon? Just making new friends. I made some good friends there. Um, going on the journey, and ultimately, what I'd learned previously, just going into a first team and. Uh, impacting what I've learned on the football pitch it's a great feeling you know when you work at your craft at your craft and you believe in something so much and then you go out and do it and succeed with it it's like that is such a great feeling it's like I don't know uh, it's uh, I, I go back, it's, uh, it's a little bit like, uh, what's the word? I mean, ultimately, we didn't get to where we wanted to be. But after winning each game uh, or having success and winning a football game, I know the, there's a famous football coach, American football coach, that I think Vince Lombardi, the, where the trophy is named after him. It's uh, the greatest feeling in the world is uh, laying on the pitch victorious after a game. I'm paraphrasing. So that's what it was, going into the change room and just being able to succeed after going through the ups and downs of Tottenham and Brighton and and just getting there and and making sure, uh, and knowing that what I'd put in was going to come out as a success and and in the way that I wanted it because you have to understand English football isn't made for a player to come and be a deep-lying playmaker or an out-and-out playmaker in midfield. It's, that's not the style, especially in the lower divisions. That's just not the style. Uh, and just to do that and have it in that style and succeed, personally, was great for me. But at the same time, having the experiences. Hey, if you're any human being that can go through these experiences and and help and learn and help himself become a better person because of it is uh, is is fundamental and the and Swindon was a big part of that. I look back at it in fondness and I'm sure if I keep, I haven't made, uh, stayed in contact with uh, a lot of the people in Swindon, but I'm sure if I can pick up a phone and talk to them, um, they they will hopefully answer and you know talk to me and. We kind of, we kind of reminisce about how good it was and what we went through and what we've learned since then and how we've grown as people. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I mean, that was you know two hours of wonderful uh, honesty and insight that we just don't see behind the scenes. And Yasser, thank you very much. No problem, Rich. I appreciate that, and thank you for having me on. Uh, I appreciate your time, my man. The Low Strangers is a Swindon Town podcast proudly sponsored 
by the STFC Official Supporters Club. The music was created by the great Matthew Kilford and the artwork was designed expertly by Matt in Singapore. Thanks for listening. Hi, Alice Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy, or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant, like Darren Ward, or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times.